0: I have thought how I'm going to do this, okay, so I'm wearing my highest shoes, I'm going to have this side wave, because otherwise it'd be like a chad, you'd just get my little nose over the top of the lectern. So, um, <coughs> so we're coming towards the end of this series in Acts, and in fact there may be another one coming up in the autumn to do the rest of the book. And um, having heard from Jane Mitchell last week about a murderous Pharisee called Saul and the transformation in him when he encountered Jesus for himself, tonight I'm going to cherry pick one incident from later in his life just to demonstrate how great this transformation was. But first of all, last week he was called Saul, and this week he's called Paul. So what's happened? Well, soon after his conversion, he started being called Paul. And as Luke, who wrote Acts, was a close friend of Paul's, we have to assume that Luke is trying to tell us something that Paul wanted us to hear. I think the point that Luke is making is that the transformation in Paul was so great His meeting with Jesus changed him to the core, that after that he wanted to be known by a different name, to demonstrate it. Now, given that the names rhyme, it's quite possible that Paul was in fact his nickname. Saul means asked or prayed for, and Paul means small or humble. So, We could maybe think that Paul, perhaps, given his name by his parents, was a much-prayed-for and loved human son. That he, we know he was a self-righteous and arrogant Pharisee as well. But after his conversion, he chose to be called by possibly his nickname, which means something equivalent to Titch. So that demonstrates quite a big change in his heart. But, although he got a heart transplant when he um, met Jesus, he didn't get a personality transplant. He threw himself into preaching the good news about Jesus immediately, just like he had thrown himself into persecuting the church beforehand. He wasn't a man who did anything by halves. So he repeatedly got himself into trouble for being too hot-headed, even after he'd met Jesus. And the Christian leaders had to send him away twice for his own safety. First time was in Damascus. Then he went to Jerusalem. They had to send him away in Jerusalem as well. This time they sent him to his hometown of Tarsus where he went back to the family trade of making tents and kept out of trouble for the most part we assume. But in the process of all this happening he was... He made friends with somebody called Barnabas, who vouched for him to the disciples when he went to Jerusalem. And most importantly, Barnabas didn't forget him when he went away. Now, after a while, the persecution of the church drove some of the first believers out of Jerusalem. And they got as far as Antioch. And you know what it's like? The further you are away from home, the more different experiences you're willing to try. So they tried talking to non-Jews, and non-Jews started to become Christians. In fact, Antioch was the first place they were called Christians. Barnabas was a reliable sort of chap, so the disciples in Jerusalem sent him off to Antioch to see what was going on, to check it out. And Barnabas decided that what they needed was somebody like Paul with his education and his teaching skills. Somebody who could tell the non-Jewish believers some of the stuff that they were missing about God's plan for the salvation of the world. So Tarsus wasn't that far away. He sent after Tarsus for Paul and got him to Antioch. I assume Paul had chilled a bit by then and was a bit more user-friendly <laughs> and Paul proved himself really useful in Antioch so Barnabas does what you know a good church leader does he decides it's time for their young lad to go on a short-term missions trip so I think it'd be helpful to have a look at a map now because already Paul has been moving around a lot and it's quite difficult to keep track of where he is now. The words are very small but there's another map with different arrows on in a minute and it's the scale that I want you to see. So at the bottom right-hand bit there's Jerusalem, there's a little speck down at the bottom and then Damascus is just under the orange bit which says Abilene and then above that you can see Antioch. You can't see the words but you can see that's where the arrows come and go from. And Tarsus is round the corner of the Mediterranean In the region called Cilicia, it's that little black dot in the middle of the purple bit. So, Barnabas has been sent from Jerusalem at the bottom up to Antioch and he sends off to Tarsus to get Paul. And they do this little short-term missions trip together and Barnabas goes with him. you can see, they don't even get out of the Middle East. They just basically go Cyprus, Turkey and then back into Syria. So this first trip went pretty well, so a bit later on Paul thinks it would be really good to go and see all the people that I saw the first time, so he decides to go on a second trip and this time he goes with Silas and later on Timothy joins them and um, from quite early on, possibly for the whole journey, Luke, the author of Acts, is also with them. And We know this because he keeps slipping into the first person, I and we when he's writing. And you can see from this map that it's a much longer journey. And the bit that looks like a hand hanging down on the far left, that's Greece, so you can see he actually makes it into Europe. And um, the place where he crosses over from Turkey into Europe is called Macedonia. Nowadays, that's Macedonia, Greece, Albania and Bulgaria but most of the time he was in what we would call Greece today, although then only part of it was called here. So, all of that was by way of an introduction, because otherwise it seems a bit sudden to suddenly go from Saul, who's only just regained his sight in Damascus, to Paul, the preacher in Athens. So that's the introduction, and where we pick up tonight, he's in Athens. So it's not even his first place in Europe, he's done a bit of a a grand Mediterranean tour. Now, Paul is Paul, he's always the same. There's been a bit of trouble in Thessalonica and Berea, so he's had to split up from Silas and Timothy, and he's waiting for them in Athens. He's been sent on ahead for his own safety, and he's waiting for them to catch up with him. So you imagine the situation. You've got to stop off in a big city between flights, and you think, I'll just take in the sights, I've got 24 hours here. That's what Paul does. He decides to take in the sights of Athens. But he can't help himself. He's in this big city with bigger thinkers and big temples, and they are totally unaware that the biggest thing in history has just happened. And then he discovers, you know, that they're really into people talking about philosophy on the street and in the marketplace. So, He starts talking. And this is what we're looking at tonight. Now Luke records Paul's speech in some detail. So I think he thinks it's quite important. But I also think that perhaps Luke was the only person of that early Christian group that heard it. We know Silas and Timothy weren't there. So I think Luke thinks it's really important he writes it down, because otherwise... Paul probably wouldn't remember exactly what he said. Luke thinks it's important. Luke is giving us a first-hand account. It doesn't say that, but it reads like a first-hand account. When you look at this talk of Paul's, it can be quite daunting to look at it and think of it as an example for us to follow today. And I've heard quite a lot of sermons on this passage, and this talk has been held up as the way to witness And it just tends to leave me feeling really small and inadequate at the end of the talk. So I'm not going to do it in quite that way tonight. Um, There are three things that I want to look at. The first is, I want to look at what Paul doesn't do in his presentation of the good news. Secondly, I want to look at the point at which he divides his listeners and think about why that is so important. And finally, I want to look at what he does next. So, first of all, what does Paul not do that we can learn from? Well, actually, there are so many things you could say he doesn't do. I'm going to pick three, which I think are particularly important for us to think about at the moment. And you can have fun thinking of other things that he doesn't do later on, like he doesn't do the talk. Drinking Pepsi-Cola, you know. I mean, you can think of some sensible things as well. Um, The first thing he doesn't do is he does not dismiss the level of knowledge of his listeners, the level of knowledge that they have already. Neither does he dismiss their culture. In fact, he does the opposite. Where he can affirm it, he does. He even draws on their own poets and teaching. For example, he quotes, We are his, meaning God's, offspring, and for in him we live and move and have our being. And we actually know who said those. One was the Cretan philosopher Epimenides and the other was the Cilician Stoic philosopher Aratus. Now, Cilicia is where Paul is from. And this was always Paul's approach. Later in his life, he wrote to the Corinthians, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. But to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. And he's very respectful in how he says that. To those not having the law. He didn't say the dirty non-Jews. He's respectful. Now a slightly more contemporary poet has written, I'd like to say today, but it's a few years ago, If there's some kind of God, do you think he's pleased? When he looks down on us, I wonder what he sees. Do you think he'd think the things we do are a waste of time? Or maybe he'd think we're getting on just fine. Do you think he's skint or financially secure? And come election time, I wonder who he'd vote for. I think probably you're either too old or too young to know who said that. So I think Lily Allen is quite a controversial figure, and there are some Christians who would not listen to her music, and they should say you shouldn't. But actually, those are the sorts of questions she's writing in her songs. And I think that's a question that shows somebody who is searching and it's an opening to a conversation. She wants to have a conversation about these things. The second thing Paul doesn't do is he doesn't judge the the Athenians. He does not expect people who don't know and believe in Jesus to behave like he does. He doesn't scold them for worshipping many gods or having idols. It makes him distressed. It says in verse 16, it makes him distressed. But he doesn't take that out on the people. In Romans, he wrote, Christ died for the ungodly, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And later on, he wrote to Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners, of whom I am the worst, but for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. No one is to be excluded from hearing the good news because of their current state. No one has to get right first before they can throw themselves in God's mercy. Paul knew from his own experience we heard about last week that Jesus wants us to come to him just as we are. Now, we see in other places, in Acts and in his letters, Paul's excoriating disapproval of hypocrisy in Christians who pretend to be better than they are. And I believe that God in his own time will address those areas of our lives where we're not living in accordance with his will. Once we've taken his name, but that's not what I'm talking about today. It's a topic for another sermon. My third and final point that Paul does not do is that he does not demand that people come to him. He goes out into the marketplace and takes the discussion to where other people are, to where they're discussing life, the universe and everything. And for decades in this country, we have run evangelistic services on a Sunday night to which we expect unbelievers to walk through the doors with no connection with church or Christians, willingly waiting to be converted. It doesn't work like that. So Alpha breaks the mould by emphasising relationship, community, food, and not meeting on Sunday nights but the vast majority of people who come to Alpha haven't just walked through the door, they've come through friendship, for invitations of people that they know through work, family so on, they've been met in the marketplace. Now I don't know whether you're on Facebook, I am, but I check it about twice a year, (laughs) so if you ever need to get in touch with me urgently, do not use Facebook, Um, maybe you tweet, Personally, my social media vices are Instagram and Rightmove. Although I have now set up my Rightmove alerts to go to Andrew's phone. (laughs) I'm not sure what it's doing for him, but it's great for me. Um, So when I first thought about this bit of my talk, I thought to myself, now, I wonder whether Paul would be on social media today. And I reckon he would. I think it's obvious. He'd be on Question Time, he'd be on Sunrise, he'd be on Radio One, Hot FM, you name it, he'd be there. He would definitely tweet. And here are some of the things that he might say. (laughs) So, imagine it. Paul has been tweeting and posting on Facebook, the local media, the philosophy and theology department up at the university, the local bigwigs have all heard about it and they think, this guy is creating a bit of a buzz. We'll get him up to the uni in our big hall, we'll get him to do a talk. If he's good, we'll even have him in our TED event in the autumn. Brilliant! Well, that's what would have happened if Paul had been doing it today but it was 2,000 years ago before the invention of the internet. So the details are a little bit different. So the first century equivalent is that he is invited to speak at the Areopagus, which is a big deal. Now the Areopagus actually means two things. One is Mars Hill, which is still there in Athens today, and the other is the Council of Athens, which happened to meet on Mars Hill. So Areopagus came to mean both those things and the members of the council were the guardians of the city's religion, morals and education under the overall rule of the Roman Empire. Athens was given a certain amount of freedom. So when Paul is invited to the Areopagus, he doesn't say, what, share a platform with the Epicureans and the Stoics." He says, show me the platform. And he kicks off with, very topical. He picks on something that he has seen around their city. I think he definitely wouldn't have tweeted, don't you? Now, that's some of what Paul doesn't do, but I want to move on to my second point now, which is what he wouldn't compromise on, the point at which he divides his hearers. Now, apparently, there is a point of view that Paul's talk to the Athenians was an incomplete incomplete presentation of the Gospel because he doesn't mention the crucifixion explicitly. But I don't think that was a question for debate. Everybody knew that the Romans crucified people. The crucial point about the crucifixion that Paul wanted the Athenians to understand was that Jesus didn't stay crucified. So the crucifixion is implicit in his talk, nobody had any believing, any difficulty believing that a controversial figure might be crucified by the Romans, but what they couldn't believe was that that person might be resurrected. That was the issue. So why is the resurrection so divisive? I think it's because if it's true, it changes everything. If it's true, it vindicates everything Jesus ever said. If it's true, you can't continue to sit on the fence. You may think, well, yes, we all know that that's true and we all believe it, we're all Christians. But a few months ago, there was a survey conducted by the BBC which concluded, I'm going to read it, a quarter of people who describe themselves as Christians in Great Britain do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But also, and this is a bit strange, 1% of those who call themselves non-religious believe the Bible version literally. Some of the main headlines of the survey are up on the screen. I'm not going to go through them all. Can you even be a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection? Paul says, again in his letter to the Corinthians, and I'm thinking maybe we should do Corinthians after we've done the rest of Acts, um, and I'm going to read this in almost completely, and I'm going to read it slowly because it's really important. I apologise for the length, but it makes the point really clearly. I couldn't possibly say it better. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. This gets really challenging. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But... Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That is pretty strong stuff. When I became a Christian aged 18, I thought that there might be a God and he might be interested in me. But I believed that Jesus risen from the dead and that was pretty much all I knew because once I believed that Jesus had risen from the dead I knew that I had to follow him for the rest of my life and I had the rest of my life to work out the rest of the stuff but I had to start following him straight away now why did I believe he rose Well, there were two reasons One was a little miracle when somebody who had no idea of the questions that I'd been asking myself and struggling with, and was actually living in a different country at the time, sent me a little book called My God Is Real. And that person happened to be my old physics teacher. And The second thing was in the book. It was a description of an investigation by a man called Frank Morrison. Who set out to disprove the resurrection and ended up writing a book called Who Moved the Stone? And he became a Christian. Because the more he investigated, the more he became convinced that the answer to the question and all his other questions was Jesus. If you haven't read that book, it's definitely worth making time. Now, when I get downhearted, when I begin to doubt that God could love me or want me, when the behaviour of other Christians, because it's always worse when it's other Christians, crushes me, and that has happened in the past, when in my darkest moments I even doubt um, whether there's life after death, in those moments I remind myself that I believe Jesus died and... Rose again. And that is the foundation on which I've built my life since that day in 1982. It is my anchor in the storm. Sometimes it's been the only thing that I've been able to hold on to, but it has been enough. If you don't believe in the resurrection, don't quite believe in the resurrection, but you call yourself a Christian, then you have to go home and do some hard thinking. If you do not call yourself a Christian, but you think there is the slightest chance that the resurrection happened, you need to do some more investigation. Because if it's true, it vindicates everything Jesus ever said. It does not mean that Christians have not blundered their way through history, causing more damage to nations and people groups and individuals than I can bear to think. But in the words of Martin Luther King, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And when we see real Christian faith in practice, it bends that arc the right way. So do not use the failures of humans To avoid asking the right questions about Jesus. But if you are a Christian and do believe in the resurrection, then ask yourself what difference does that make to your life? I don't believe that we're meant to stay and stare at the cross forever, or worse, at our own sin at the foot of the cross. I think we're meant to live our lives in the transforming power of the resurrection. We are free to move into living a life ever closer to what God created us for. Our God-given gifts coming to a better fruition than they could possibly ever do if we were left to our own devices. Paul was a passionate and creative Bible teacher. Before he met Jesus, he used that passion and that creativity. To bring death but after he met Jesus he used it to bring life through the good news of the kingdom of God and he had a lot more fun doing it despite the dangers and this transformation in Paul came about after he met Jesus face to face and we are called to give our neighbor the same opportunity that Paul had we are called to be Jesus's hands and feet the church to be his body We shouldn't just preach a resurrected Christ but live him. It is much harder for people to deny the resurrection if they can see the impossible difference it makes to our lives right in front of them. That our hearts of stone have been replaced with living ones. But it is only the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to live those impossibly different lives. And it is only the Holy Spirit that re- reveals Jesus to people when they ask the question, Who moved the stone? So Paul divides his listeners. But what does he do next? Well, exactly as today, the resurrection splits people into the scoffers and those who are intrigued. Paul just moves on. Athens was only meant to be a stopover. The names of some of those who became Christians are given, so clearly he hung around long enough to give them an opportunity to ask him some more. But he was focused on God's call to take the gospel to the next place. And here's another not for free. Paul was not interested in mega churches or his own personal status. He wanted as many people as possible to hear the invitation of Christ and he never stayed anywhere longer than was necessary just to make sure people got the essentials. He wanted to extend the kingdom of God, not his own kingdom. And people think he wasn't a team player, but I I don't think that's true. I think he was the ultimate team player. I think he knew his own strengths and weaknesses. He was great at presenting the Gospel clearly. He was really good at sound teaching on principles of Christian living. But his people skills were frankly not that good. He couldn't tolerate fools or hypocrites. He did what he was good at and he left the rest to God's bigger team. After Athens, he went to Corinth and he stayed a lot longer there. And later on, he wrote to the Corinthians because they were getting a bit competitive and saying, I'm better than you because I follow this person and I f- you follow that person. And he wrote to them, what, after all, is Apollos?" And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, and God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. God's building. By the grace God has given me, that is Paul, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. So we can look at Paul and we can see this amazing teacher, this almost impossible to follow example of culturally relevant teaching. And then we look at ourselves and we think, oh, I can't be an evangelist like Paul. I might as well just give up. But we're not necessarily supposed to be. We are supposed to be transformed by meeting Jesus and then to use the gift he has given us to his glory. As we go about our daily lives and calling, telling people honestly the difference the risen Christ has made to us and doing our best not to put stumbling blocks in the paths of others, remembering that we don't have to do everything on our own, that we are a team. We are working together as a family. That doesn't sound too hard. Thank you, Mary. Could we have the band back up again, please?